So when I was in middle school, every September we had to do something called the pacer test in gym class. I think this story might resonate with a bunch of you because I grew up in Philadelphia, but Prasanna told me that he had to do the pacer test in the St. Louis area. So it seems like, unfortunately, it might have a national reach. We were initially going to play you some audio from the test, but apparently we can't because of a thing called like copyright law or something like that. So feel free to look it up on YouTube, but be warned, it might stir up some memories you've tried very hard to forget. For those of you who don't know, basically it's an endurance test. You run back and forth across the gym for as long as possible. No one wanting to be the first to drop out in front of all of their classmates, right? It's horrible. I want to use the pacer test as an analogy. So close your eyes and, no, you don't have to close your eyes. But imagine that on the day of the pacer, I decide to play basketball during lunch and I twist my ankle. Not badly enough to go to the hospital, but it still hurts. So gym is the period right after lunch, and I decide to give the pacer a go because it's a big part of my gym grade, and I'm the type of nerd who cares about my gym grade. But after two laps, I decide I probably shouldn't be running on my ankle, and I drop out. Okay, then a couple weeks later, the principal gets a report with all of the student scores, and they see my score on top, a 2, which is really bad, by the way. Immediately, alarms go off, like the school must have a fitness problem. So my principal moves quickly to make big changes. Students used to get passes so that they could use public transportation for free to get to school. Not anymore. Every student has to walk to school. Kids could also get breakfast at school if they arrived early enough. Well, worried that the breakfast was contributing to obesity, the principal got rid of that too. Finally, and this one's my favorite, convinced that sitting inspires a culture of laziness, the principal sold every chair and desk in the school. As you can tell, she was a big fan of Moynihan. So it's possible that 90% of students in my school actually weren't in great physical condition. But even in that case, these weren't helpful solutions, right? I guess I should be clear, none of this actually happened. My principal was always lovely during my time in school. But that hypothetical is an unironically accurate analogy to the crack scare, where my poor fitness score represents anecdotal evidence of a problem, and of course where my principal's solutions represent a misguided and even harmful approach to a problem that they hadn't really measured. Today, we're going to explore the impact of crack cocaine in the United States, and specifically in poor urban areas. Before we do, it's important we understand that regardless of how big a problem crack was or wasn't, the response was racist and it was wrong. From the moment crack cocaine first became a news story, people in positions of power and the public at large failed to show any interest in accurately gauging the scope of the drug. They let hysterical anecdotes shape their opinions and worse, their actions. So even if we were to concede that crack was the greatest problem facing Americans in the 1980s and 90s, the war on drugs was never the antidote.
America looked at a challenge facing communities of color and cooked up various unhelpful strategies. The drug war unjustly targeted black and brown Americans, and nothing we learn about crack today or any other day will change that fact. With that in mind, let's get into the episode. You're listening to Colored, a podcast about crack cocaine, the war on drugs, and the making of post-civil rights America. My name is Bersana. And I'm Joe. This is a seven-part series, and you're listening to episode five, The Epidemic. So I liked how you tied the pacer test to our project. It seems a little bit like a reach, but I think you pulled it off. Um, I just wanted to talk about one memory I had of the pacer test. Um, so you know how in like elementary school when you like the people who were the fastest were also like kind of cool. Like if you were really fast at running the mile, you were considered cool. Yeah, but for us, that would happen for like a week and then it would wear off. <laughs> like it wasn't permanent. I mean, I think that's true for us too, but I was like really attached to that idea. So like the pacer test was a part of that. And I was super slow like in the mile, but I was good at the pacer. So um, I would always get in the 50s in the pacer as like a th- in third grade. And um, the last day of third grade, we ran the pacer test and I got 60 on the dot. And it was like this bittersweet feeling because like I had just run the pacer test, which is this awful thing. But like I had this huge accomplishment and, you know, I thought that would, you know, sort of like take me into the space of like being cool. <laughs> I didn't do that, but I still felt good about it. So, How does it compare to that half marathon you just ran? Um, probably more fulfilling. No, it's really, <laughs> I, I'm, it's funny that you have a story because I kind of, just with the low quality of the tape, I kind of assumed it was like a bootleg thing that has happened in my school, but it's just no, like a, real, yeah. it's a real thing. It, it's weird because I think the tape is different depending on where mm. you go, but they, for some reason, <laughs> have it everywhere. Right, so uh, what are you going to be talking about in part one today? Um, so in part one, we're going to start off with the question you posed, how bad was crack in reality? And the way we start is by taking some myths about the crack cocaine scare that came out of the crack cocaine scare about the drug. And I go about talking about those myths, and then I go deeper into the issue of how bad was crack really. What um, you really get out of it, I hope, is that it's not a very easy question to resolve. Definitely. All right, let's hear it. So all the way back in episode zero, we talked about how this project is not primarily a journalistic endeavor. What we meant by that was that, yes, interviews are the central piece to this project, and we do kind of act like journalists throughout, but we're not really trying to be objective here. We're not presenting the story for people to pick it up and interpret it in any way they want to. 
We have a very specific message we're trying to convey. Now, obviously, it can be very difficult to make definitive conclusions about a topic as complex as the one we're trying to cover right now, but we've tried our best to be clear about our interpretations of what we've learned up to this point. That got a lot harder going into this episode. How big of an impact did crack actually have during the crack scare is extremely complex. But there are still some things that are not up for debate. So have you guys ever heard of the show Mythbusters? It's about these two very handy guys, and they take a myth from the science world. For example, does having a cell phone out at a gas station cause the gas station to explode? And then they test that myth out to see if it's true or not. In case you were wondering, you will not blow up if you text while filling up your car with gas. Well, today we're going to do our own version of Mythbusters, except with the crack scare. Crack was billed as a drug more dangerous and addictive than we'd ever seen before. And there were a bunch of myths that came out of the scare, which were either originated or spread by politicians and the media. We're going to put these myths to the test. So myth number one, crack addiction. As we've mentioned, in the 80s, crack was seen as this super addictive drug. This was a central theory to the crack scare, that it had some sort of mind-bending power that hooked you immediately upon trying it once. But this myth is pretty easy to disprove. Only 10 to 20% of crack users were addicts, and this was at the height of the scare. Actually, less than one out of four people who've ever tried crack have used it more than once. Myth number two, violence. Through purely psychological effects, crack was also thought to cause extreme levels of violence, a direct source of the crime spike in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, this myth is just flat out wrong. Crack has not proven to cause violent tendencies amongst its users. Now, this doesn't mean that crack isn't related to violence, but the violence has to do with selling crack, not using it. Myth number three, crack is much worse than powder cocaine. A huge element to the media's portrayal of crack was that it was a much worse form of an already bad drug. Crack was supposedly for those cocaine addicts who couldn't get enough of a high from powder. But, once again, that's not really how it worked. Yes, crack does produce a more intense high than powder, but that high also lasts for a much shorter period of time. Furthermore, you're consuming less of the actual drug every time you're taking a hit. In fact, the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse testified in front of Congress in 2006 that the pharmacological effects of cocaine are the same, regardless of whether it is in the form of cocaine hydrochloride, in other words, powder, or crack cocaine. Myth number four, crack babies. In 1989, a study came out that in Philadelphia city hospitals, 
One in every six babies were born to mothers addicted to crack. These crack babies supposedly had life-altering deficiencies, smaller heads, bad muscle tone, and abnormal social behavior. The crack baby became symbolic to the crack cocaine scare at large. It was this ultimate individual moral failure, subjecting one's own child to disease and distress because of personal drug use. Now let's enter our guest mythbuster, Dr. Hallam Hurt. Dr. Hurt, after the initial study in 1989, began her own study on babies exposed to crack in utero. Her intention was to help doctors treat these babies effectively, minimizing any mental or physical damage they received. Dr. Hurt's control group were babies not exposed to crack, but in the same socioeconomic position as babies who were. So her control group consisted mainly of low-income, predominantly black babies. Now, Dr. Hurt tracked these babies for 20 years, well into their adulthood. And what she found was astonishing. First, both groups of babies fared very similarly on various development and intelligence tests. Second, and here's what's really, really important, both the exposed group and the control group performed abnormally low on tests compared to the average American. Their IQs were significantly lower, as well as their school readiness. The question is, why were all of these babies, not just the crack babies, but all of them, scoring low on these tests? Well, Hertz's team began to collect other data concerning the children. Here's what they found. 81% of the kids had seen someone arrested, 74% had heard gunshots, 35% had seen someone get shot, and 19% had seen a dead body. Oh, and by the way, this data was collected when these kids were 7 years old. Here's Dr. Hertz's final conclusion for the study in her own words. Quote, Poverty is a more powerful influence on the outcome of inner-city children than gestational exposure to cocaine. Now, Barbara Fields was a senior officer in the Boston Public Schools Office of Equity during this time. She had a really interesting memory of how this idea of a generation of crack babies permeated educational spaces. So as I went to some of the conferences regarding, you know, kids as they entered school uh, in the early grades, you know, kindergarten, first, second, third grade, um, we were expecting to see a large influx of children who were experiencing the impact of, of their mother's addictions. And so we were looking at having all kinds of uh, classroom management uh, issues, uh, children having very short attention spans and what kind of support would they need and increase in children with special needs, disabilities, uh, and how the district was going to address those issues. What we actually saw, you know, fast forwarding to, you know, three, four, five years when these children were supposed to enter uh, the school setting, 
was that there was more hype than than uh, substance from what we felt we were seeing. Uh, that we didn't see that large number of children that we were expecting. That what we uh, saw often was some of the same kinds of behaviors uh, that we'd seen in the past of children that were in need of services, nothing that was to the degree of what we had been hearing. So clearly the way that crack was portrayed at the height of the crack scare was, if not false, greatly exaggerated. And that's very, very important to know. But here's the conundrum we've faced while trying to make this project. Talk to someone who grew up in a poor, predominantly black neighborhood in the 80s or even in the 90s, and they'll likely have vivid memories of how crack impacted their community. We got a chance to speak with wife and husband, Haja and Ricky McGee, on a number of occasions. They both grew up in Dorchester, another predominantly black neighborhood here in Boston, and they now work in their community as social philanthropists. Here's Ricky talking about how he experienced crack when he was growing up. The crack house was always the realm of activity, people getting in fights, we had gunshots in it. Um, the door was always wide open, but when we looked into the actual house, it was as dark as anything. And um, so it was always like an adventure to go in there. And, you know, one time we went in there, like five, six of us, and we're just running around, um, you know, hitting people and looking at crack addicts, seeing people that we've seen in the community, that we know in the community. We've seen some parents actually in there using drugs and that actually changed the shift of you know how i view people in my community it created the standard of defeatism um as it relates to a community and i think the impact that it had on me it kind of took the concept of community out of me and here's haja and it was sad because a lot of these individuals were kids that i played with in the community we went to the same school we did the community activities for the state jobs as was reiterated in regards to the red shirts and ABCD working at summer camps together. So it was really hard to kind of look at that paradigm shift because it was like, it was inevitable. Either you're going to fall victim to it or you're going to be the one on the other end selling it to somebody. Remember Jeremy Thompson? He works at Haley House and was first featured in episode two. Well, I didn't have a negative view, you know, um... And I didn't have a great view of people. It was just something people did. You know, as a kid, you just think this was recreational. You knew. But for me, I knew it was something I didn't want to do because it was something that took my mother away from me. You know, this is something, anything that kept a mother from loving her kids, you know, was something I didn't want to be a part of. And here's Michael Curry, who we've now heard from a bunch of times. For me, it was a lot more personal, right? I I don't know in my high school years um, in the early 80s if I was that conscious of um, what crack was, right? I just know it was a drug. And, you know, there were other drugs that we knew about uh, as a a young kid growing up in Roxbury. But what made it very personal and sort of was my education around crack was having an older sister, um, maybe four years older than me, uh, who was, you know, deep in the streets and got addicted to crack and seeing what it did to her. You know, the the real 
um, ugly side of that addiction is that, you know, she would come home and, and rob from our house. She would, you know, we'd come home from school and our stuff would be missing. You know, Christmas gifts would be gone. Um, bikes and, and you name it would be taken and she didn't, would have sold those to um, feed her addiction. So what are we to make of all of this? It's clear that the impacts of crack were exaggerated in many ways. Crackheads, crack babies, and crack violence were myths that were certainly blown out of proportion, if not altogether untrue. But ask any of the four people we heard from just now. Or for that matter, ask anyone who lived in a low-income urban area during the late 1980s, and they'll all pretty much tell you that crack had a significant impact on their communities. To solve this conundrum, to truly understand how bad crack really was during the crack cocaine scare, we're going to have to look deeper. In part two, Joe's going to take a look at the statistics surrounding crack in order to give us a better answer. So I wanted to end that last part by saying I'm going to give it off to Joe, the king of numbers, or, <laughs> or something like that, because you, throughout the series, have done a lot of the parts that deep into, like, the minutia of, like, statistics. Yeah. And, like, you, I feel like you do a pretty good job of it, though. Like, you don't make it boring. I appreciate that. I, I try really hard, and um, I mentioned this in, in the next part, but I, I, I've tried hard not to... Um, overburden people with numbers and I think that we both have tried hard throughout the series and I just give that up in this next part like, <laughs> the numbers are important and we're going to talk about them yeah but like it's not just like throwing numbers at you it's more like delving deeper into the numbers right sure <laughs> no definitely it's it's using um, kind of everything we've learned to this point in the series to to coincide with what we learned in the next part um, and kind of hopefully draw some conclusions about the impact of crack now that we know a lot of things that weren't actually true. Right. So you might remember that in episode three, I spent a significant amount of time describing how poor data collection on crack was. But then, for some reason, I walked into this episode thinking we could easily give you a clear idea of crack's impact. It's honestly hard to know how many people were using crack during the 80s, let alone who was addicted and at what cost. We do know that drug addiction has never been quite as pervasive as we've often been led to believe. Cocaine use in all forms peaked at around 3% of the population, and quote, hardcore use was even less common. Knowing now that somewhere from 10 to 20% of crack users become addicted, we can basically say that it's statistically impossible that crack use was as widespread as many claimed it to be. Still, if even a tenth of a percent of US residents during the 80s use crack regularly, we'd be looking at a significant number of people around 240 or 250,000. That's enough of a reach to scar families and communities, as many people say the drug did. And that, 
loops us back to our initial question about impact, right? What was the depth and breadth of those scars? Well, I'll be completely honest, we ran into a bit of a wall trying to answer that question. And then we came across two initiatives run by the National Institute of Justice, or the NIJ. Recognizing that politicians were making sweeping changes to drug policy without any reliable evidence, the NIJ started the Drug Use Forecasting Program and the Careers in Crack Project in 1987. They earnestly hoped to learn about how crack affected the lives of drug-addicted individuals, those around them, and their neighborhoods at large. We are coming up to another one of those sections with a lot of dense information. And to this point in the series, Prasanna and I have tried extremely hard not to overwhelm you with data. But the facts of these two projects are really, really important, so please just try to bear with me. The Drug Use Forecasting Program, or the DUF, measured illicit drug use among arrestees in 24 cities by testing their urine samples. Of all arrestees in all cities who tested positive for using cocaine within the previous 72 hours, only half actually admitted to doing so. But three quarters of those who did fess up reported having used crack. See, the DUF had to ask because the urinalysis they used couldn't distinguish between crack and powder cocaine. That alone should tell you something about crack's highly feared pharmacology, right? But anyway, that's a high proportion of people using crack. And during the late 80s, in nearly every city observed by the DUF, at least 40% of arrestees for any crime, let me be clear, not just drug crimes, any crime, tested positive for cocaine. In many cities, that number was over 50%. And in my hometown, Philadelphia, Nearly 80% of arrestees in the DUF sample in 1989 tested positive for cocaine. If we assume that three-quarters of those people were using crack, the numbers are still staggering. The Careers in Crack project found some pretty jarring results as well. The project looked at over a thousand hard drug abusers and sellers, most of whom were crack involved. And it found that while crack didn't really increase users' rates of committing most forms of non-drug crime, women who had already engaged in prostitution before using crack would work as prostitutes, quote, substantially more frequently after becoming involved with crack, end quote. It also found that by 1988, crack had become the most lucrative drug for people in the study to sell, and that those who used crack often sold crack and then often used that extra money to intensify their drug use. We introduced Mary Curry in episode two. She's been in addiction recovery for 26 years, but she was willing to share her story to give us a better understanding of crack addiction. And she corroborated that point. I was supposed to be selling drugs, supposed to be selling some cocaine for someone, and um, I remember one time, me and his brother had smoked it all up. They, most of your your stuff is going to get used at some point because you, you get addicted to it. So far, that all sounds pretty damning of crack. 
But Careers in Crack shares a crucial piece of information. That virtually every crack user they interacted with had previously been a regular user of other illegal drugs. In fact, 99% of crack users in the study reported that crack wasn't the first illicit drug they'd ever tried. This was true of Mary as well. No, crack was not the first drug I used. It, it was, uh, <laughs> I think it was my, wasn't my last. It, it, it took me to, I started um, uh, marijuana, wine, and well, I actually need, we need to back up. As a child, I drink, you know, people leave their cups on the table, and when you're a child, you're nosy, you taste stuff. But to you at 15, um, I was smoking weed, drinking wine, and at some point, I was smoking weed, drinking wine, drinking liquor, taking tabs, selling tabs. Um, I learned in the white neighborhoods, I lived in uh, Garden Mass, Fitchburg, I hung out in Lemister. Um, I learned in the white neighborhoods, you, you know, you do acid, mushrooms, black, sniff black beauties, uh, oil, hash oil or hash. So yeah, most people in the careers in crack study revealed, quote, extensive histories of drug abuse, drug selling, and other legal violations prior to ever trying crack. I can't stress how important this is. Crack wasn't an unprecedentedly addictive drug, right? It, like every hard drug before and after it, had its biggest impact on the two most at-risk populations, existing drug users and young people, who have typically used illicit drugs at higher rates than older adults. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that everyone who fell victim to crack falls into one of those two profiles. Both the DUF and Careers in Crack were looking into the lives of people who had reached some threshold of hardship, like arrest, imprisonment, entry into a drug treatment program, etc. But I think these studies, combined with our other knowledge, tell us what we need to know. Crack is, of course, a drug with potential dangers, and it definitely was present in poor, urban neighborhoods of color. That's reflected in the finding that for many people in the studies, it became the most profitable drug to sell. Its characteristics, being easy to produce and cheap to buy, made it generally accessible in poor neighborhoods when other, more expensive drugs may not have been. But crack wasn't the causal problem. The majority of crack-involved people in the careers and crack sample lived in neighborhoods where people often struggled to get by, and their hardships existed well before the 1980s and the rise of crack cocaine. Many of those who sold crack came from families where at least three generations of their ancestors had lived below the poverty line for their entire lives. Many sellers were homeless, or had been in the past. And crack largely didn't drive its users to harmful behaviors, like violence or unregulated prostitution. But it did increase those behaviors among people who were already involved with them. So, I think liberal people often try to downplay crack's impact in order to argue that the war on drugs was a mistake. 
but in doing so, they really overlook an important factor in all of this. It's clear that crack did make a mark on communities across the country, but by and large, it did its worst on people whose society had already cast aside. The big epidemic wasn't crack. It was generational poverty and systemic inequity. Because if crack had never been introduced to black communities, the problems it exacerbated would still exist. We'd just find something else to pass the blame to. And that's why, well after the crack scare has faded into the background, the challenges facing poor Americans of color have held strong. Crack didn't create the health deficiencies among the black babies in Dr. Hurd's crack baby study that Prasanna told us about, right? Systemic poverty did. More specifically, a lack of access to adequate prenatal care and other health services. Well, that example carries to a larger context. Poverty, along with racist social policy, drives the lack of opportunity within many communities of color for adequate health care, education, housing, nutrition, employment, all these key components to a high quality of life. People have always used drugs. They always will. And unfortunately, some people are gonna pay steeper prices for their use. But when we, as a country, finally bother to earnestly address the inequities we've created and think intelligently about drug policy, we'll finally minimize those dangers. Okay, so I just covered a lot of the different impacts of crack cocaine, but there's definitely one big question I left out that gets brought up a lot, and you're going to cover that in the next part, right? Right. I, I don't want to give away what that question is exactly, but I will say, um, you know, obviously there are a lot of direct impacts to crack, but there's also a lot of indirect impacts, um, things that happen on a sort of secondary level, and we have to address that too, because that's part of everything that is about how bad crack really was. Are you sure you can't tell us what it's about? I mean, you'll hear in like 10 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. All right, so if you followed along up to this point, you might still have a really big question about crack and communities of color. What about the crack-related violence politicians and the media talked about so much? Shouldn't that be considered in our discussion of crack's impact? Definitely. Crack first appeared in American cities around 1984, and according to the U.S. Department of Justice, in the eight years between then and 1992, the U.S. violent crime rate rose by about 52%. Here's Haja McGee talking about this in the context of her community growing up. I saw communities become divided, literally, where you would be on one side of the street 
and know people there and they'd be on the other side of the street and know people there so you had to have a happy medium so you had to meet in the middle of the street because nobody owned that so that's the only way you was able to communicate and it was very unfortunate because um neighbors became enemies you know family members became enemies so the question is how much of that violence had to do with crack well we just told you guys that crack in a pharmacological sense does not cause violent tendencies. That being said, in the Careers in Crack project, use is the operative word. While violence was not necessarily associated with individuals who simply use the drug, selling crack was strongly associated with violence in the context of that study. Okay, so to explain this, I'm going to have to take you guys back a little bit. Remember episode two so many weeks ago? We talked about this thing called an underground economy. These are essentially just informal, oftentimes illegal economies that arise when people don't have formal employment opportunities. A really good example of an underground economy is, you guessed it, the crack market. Ricky McGee talked about the lack of opportunity that forced young people in his community to participate in the underground drug market when he was growing up. Yeah, Red Shirts. It was, um, the Red Shirts was a program that was started by the mayor. I think it was Kevin White when he was mayor. Um, I was there during the Flynn era, Ray Flynn. And what basically you sign up at a community center, Red Shirts was, you put on these Red Shirts and all of you from the community go to like a different area of Boston and help clean up, whether it was Boston Common, whether it was your own neighborhood. And we got weekly checks. And the checks was pretty, you know, substantial for young kids in the inner city, but it allowed us to accumulate enough capital to go school shopping, you know, at the end of the summer. But once those programs shut down, you know, drugs and selling drugs was really the only economic base that people was willing to allow a 12 year old to entertain even beyond the summer. Ricky also said that even before programs like the Red Shirts were losing funding, some kids decided to sell drugs because they saw more financial opportunity there. So combine the absence of promising alternatives with an emerging profitable drug market and you get an underground economy. Now, here's what you need to understand. All of these underground economies are characterized by one thing, violence. In these sorts of markets, there's no way to formally arbitrate business disputes. Carl Williams, a staff attorney at the ACLU of Massachusetts, gave us a really good analogy in order to understand this. Crack, base cocaine, crack cocaine, in itself did not create any violence in our communities ever. It did not. What did is the war on drugs. Because you have a situation where when you criminalize, so I'm gonna explain a thing called self-help, right? Which is a legal concept where, and I'll talk about it about a house. So someone, I actually rent my house to some Northeastern students. If they did something that I didn't like, I have to go into court, I have to get an eviction order, I have to go to them, an eviction order is something from the court, I can't as a landlord evict someone. You have to go, you are evicted now, it's like getting deported, right? Um, or you can do this thing called self-help, which is frowned on by the law and is generally illegal um, in almost all circumstances. I could go to the house, use keys, get in, 
pack up everything, put it in bags, throw it on the curb, and bolt the doors and like shutter the house. That's frowned upon. And what would happen if they, if I did that? But what do you, what, they would go to the to the court and say, hey, he locked us out. He owes us a ton of money. We have to get back in the house. Or he has to give us a whole bunch of money for all the shit he ruined and the fact that we're standing on the street now. So we're going to stay at the, you know, at the Taj for a few nights and then he's going to pay for it all, which would probably happen. And how exactly does that parallel drug dealing? Let's say there's a few kids in the block on the same street and they're selling rock, right? And someone w- rolls up to them and says, hey, you gave me crappy drugs last week. I want better drugs. I want you to replace my product, right? And they say, and so someone comes up and says, yo, man, you you didn't give me the right stuff. You owe me some money. That starts to escalate. The person's like, go to hell. I'm not going to give it to you. You don't file a small claims court and go into court, right? So you can't, you can't solve that. So what you have to do is either just take it or you have to resort to self-help. You have to say, like, I'm going to do this myself. No one's going to the doctor and saying, you better give me a prescription or I'm going to kill you, right? Because there's structures that support that. There's civil law that enforces that, right? There's criminal law that will protect that, right? And I think in a, uh, a legalized uh, marketplace, I'm not going to say you're not going to see any of that. But you're not going to see, like, you know, people armed to their teeth and doing drive-by shootings to say, I'm going to protect my, you know, drive-through that sells, you know, weed or sells ecstasy, right? Or sells something else. Okay, so on top of all of this, there's this ever-present influence of poverty. Think of college. It's not too often you hear of gun violence in the average college drug market. Why? Because college is inherently tied to opportunity. The opportunity to explore your passions, study abroad, do internships, and eventually start a career in the field of your choosing. I would imagine that a college drug dealer might walk away from their business for a number of reasons. For example, they might want to focus more time into bringing up their grades. They might realize they don't actually need the cash to survive and decide it's not worth the risk. Or they might get an internship out of town for the summer and it's no longer feasible for them to do their business away from school. Now, life doesn't always end up being happily ever after for many college graduates, but the options that a college experience offers are worlds away from what was available to many poor young people of color during the 1980s. Most of the young people selling crack We're not deciding between doing that or taking a position at an insurance agency. So when the choice was between backing out or engaging in the violence associated with selling drugs, many people chose the option that allowed them to provide for themselves and for the people that they cared about. All right, so that was the final part of this episode, and obviously we threw a lot of information at you guys, um, and, you know, the conclusions we have are definitely solid, but also very nuanced, and Joe, you're going to kind of sum it all up in this conclusion. Yeah, and uh, contrary to what my reputation is, I'm not going to talk about any numbers in this conclusion. It's going to get straight to the point. Sweet.
I want to be very clear about what we think everything in this episode means. Crack is a hard drug. Like all hard drugs, crack poses certain dangers to anyone who uses it. But crack isn't more dangerous than every other drug we've ever seen. In fact, it doesn't even differ pharmacologically from powder cocaine. So no, crack did not create an uncontrollable wave of new drug addicts. But the drug was unique because it was introduced to America at the same time that there was an influx of powder cocaine into the country, which drove down its price. It's also fairly easy to convert powder cocaine to crack, which was even cheaper, and this made it viable to use and sell in poor urban communities. Finally, evidence suggests that crack did exacerbate some existing problems in neighborhoods of color, and the underground market led to violence. But crack's impact in poor neighborhoods of color, while yes, undeniable, is widely misunderstood, and in some ways, it's overblown. Crack in our cities during the 80s and 90s was a symptom. It was really a sounding of the alarm on generations' old problems, and frankly, an example of what 300-plus years of oppression can create. Now, we don't think addiction is a good thing or that drug market violence is a good thing, but we do think we now have a decent understanding about what made drug use unique in poor neighborhoods of color in the 80s and 90s and what led to violence in the crack market. So given the impossible predicaments our country has thrust many people of color into, we can't condemn them for sometimes making what we, from the outside, consider less than ideal decisions. The war on drugs, in theory, is a band-aid, right? In practice, it's a band-aid dipped in cyanide, but in theory, it's a band-aid. Even if implemented non-discriminatorily, it would be a confusing, incredibly expensive surface-level intervention that ineffectively tried to address deep, deep issues. And we can't even say that the drug war was an earnest attempt at addressing violence or addiction because so many people get arrested simply because they used or had drugs, not because they were addicted, which is best addressed through treatment anyway, or were dealing which is obviously a much more complex choice than we like to acknowledge. Disenfranchised people honestly deserve much better, and we are definitely going to get into what that might look like. But first, we have a couple more things to touch on. This episode should make it clear that drugs impact people differently, depending on their experiences and their environment. Hopefully, our previous episodes made it clear that the same is true of our justice system. Well, just as those differences exist across race and class, they exist across gender and sexual identity. Next week, we'll look at how drugs, and particularly the war against them, have uniquely impacted women and or LGBTQ people of color. 
Thank you so much for listening to episode five of Colored. If you enjoyed and you want to keep up with us, you can follow us on SoundCloud or your podcast app of choice. You can also sign up for our mailing list at www.coloredpodcast.com. And of course, we want to give our quick uh, weekly shout outs first to the University Scholars Program for making all of this happen. Second, to Dr. Sarah Jackson, our mentor. Third, to Joey Powell, our good friend, for making all the music you heard today. And fourth, to Allison Del Castillo for creating our logo. Here's a clip from episode six. Most of the time, the men, it was men that would have the money to get high, and then and you have sex with them to do it. And was that a, a common thing for men it just in, in the drug market to take advantage of women's sexuality for, for drugs? Yes, most certainly. Uh, whether it be oral sex, vagina, or jerking them off, that you, it most certainly was, um, and you know I couldn't be on the streets because knew too many people knew my mom and would call her and say, "I see your daughter out here on Blue Hill Ave or Washington Street," so I had to go inside the bar, you know, to look for uh, a, a victim, not realizing that I was the victim. So. Uh, one time, I remember being with a state trooper, and he spent a whole bunch of money, but my brain didn't stop to think, like, take one of them $100 bills and stick it in your bra or put it somewhere. Keep something for yourself. So it was, uh, uh, like, a police officer that was buying drugs? An actual police officer, yeah.